with me. Father, we do say hallelujah. Praise you, O Lord. You are the one who is worthy to be worshipped. You, because of your great love, because of so many other things, God, we want to worship you. And we pray that we would worship you now as we open up your word, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit and give us understanding and insight and strength to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those of you that are visiting here, we are going through a sermon series here at Cornerstone, Romans 1 through 8. We started a little while ago, and we're going to have a, a few months left on it still after today. And the way I've been setting it up is that the f- very first part of the book of Romans, the first half chapter, kind of is an introduction. It explains what the book is about, and it is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But before Paul jumped into explaining the good news, he spent about two chapters explaining the bad news. So for about the last month or so, we have been looking at the bad news. The reason it is that we need a Savior. And we're going to see today in Paul's conclusion, he gets every single one of us. He knows who we are. We are sinners. We are in need of a Savior. Now for today's message, I want you to picture a courtroom setting in which you are on trial. And the question at the trial is about righteousness. And here's the question. Have you lived a righteous life? God is the judge, and the life that you have lived is presented as evidence at this trial. Now, righteousness is important, because if we have any hope of salvation, any hope of living forever with God, we have to be righteous. One of the, the, the second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, there's a verse in there talks about God in his final dwelling place. He says, nothing impure will ever enter it. So how are you doing on that purity, perfect purity? Now the Apostle Paul didn't meet any of us, but his words in Romans 3, 9 through 20 present a very strong case against all of humanity if we're talking about our own righteousness. And, and that's what I think this passage is doing. It's talking about all of us as humans in general. So I want to read the passage for you. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? So you can kind of see Paul almost like the uh, it's his closing argument in a trial. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. So again, Paul's kind of concluding argument about sin here. He's already spent about two chapters talking about the bad news. And his conclusion is that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are under sin. So whether it's people who have received God's law and God's word and inevitably failed to live up to it, 
or whether it's people who'd never even heard God's word but fell short of even their own standards, much less God's standards, standards, Paul's conclusion is that all are under sin. John Stott describes this lifestyle of sin by saying, sin is the revolt of self against God, the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. I often talk about that word picture here where you can picture a throne on your heart and we all assume that that throne was created for us and we climb up onto that throne and pretend that we're the king or the queen of our own lives. But that throne was made for God. And, and sin is the act of us trying to take God off of that throne, trying to pretend that we are the master of our own lives. So that's what sin is. To be righteous, on the other hand, is to do what God wants, to live according to God's ways. Now, let me just clarify something in here because I don't want to get any nasty emails from any of you after this sermon. Paul's argument here in Romans 3 is not yet about whether God can make us righteous. Clearly he can do that. We're going to get into that the next couple of weeks. We're going to see even an Old Testament depiction of how, how God credited righteousness to Abraham. So, yes, God can make us righteous, but the question at hand here today in Paul's passage is whether we have a righteousness of our own to submit to God. Okay? So looking at our lives, do we have a righteousness of our own to present to God? A righteousness of which we could say, okay, God, I'm, I'm, I'm pure, I'm right, let me in. The trial here is a trial where our lives are held up to the perfect standard of God's righteousness. And again, as Paul said in verse 9, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And by the way, that's all of us. Either you're a Jew or you're a non-Jew Gentile. And either one, it doesn't matter. Whether you were a Jew who received God's law, who was brought up in the traditions, yet failed to live according to them, or whether you're a Gentile and you didn't know what God's law was, but you did things that we all know that are wrong. Every single one of us is under sin. Doug Moo describes that phrase under sin to mean that we are helpless prisoners of sin. We are addicted to sin and that we are unable to free ourselves by anything we can do. And Paul will say in just a few verses later in 3.23, all have sinned. So the picture here is that we are sinners. And again, what the bad news is supposed to help us realize is that we need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. And to hammer this point home, Paul uses the longest string of Old Testament quotations anywhere in the New Testament. So there's a little piece of trivia for you. You can wow your friends with this. Ask them, where's the longest string of Old Testament quotations in the New Testament? Well, right here. Romans 3. Now, as we're reading through these quotes, I want you to understand that this is what it would be like if we were left to ourselves. If we were to just try to go through this life trying to have our own righteousness this is the kind of life that we humans would live. It's a path of following the sinful nature and rejecting God. And now, it, I'm going to give a little homework assignment too, and, and this is one, I, I would love it if some of you would take me up on this. I've actually done this three times this week and I enjoyed it each time I did it. But on your own sometimes, take your Bible, and you'll notice when Paul quotes uh, hopefully in your Bible you have a way of understanding where the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament. In my Bible there's a little uh, footnote there that says that it's quoting the Old Testament. Here's the homework assignment. Every time you see one of those Old Testament quotes in this passage here, 
go back and read the context of it in the Old Testament. So even if Paul is just quoting one verse, for example, he quotes from Psalm 5 in here, go back and read the entire chapter of Psalm 5 and do that for all of the quotes here in Romans 3, 9 through 20. Now one of them, in order to get the context, you have to read a big chunk. It's um, when he quotes from Isaiah 59. I'd really like it if you'd read from 57, 14 all the way to the end of 61. So that's four and a half chapters there. But uh, if you do that, you will get just this wonderful picture of what it means for us to be unrighteous in light of God's righteousness. Now one thing you'll find if you do read that context is that the Old Testament writers were contrasting our unrighteousness with God's righteousness, but also they were contrasting the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked. So even within that, they were understanding that that God could make us righteous, but yet there's a way of wickedness that we follow on our own. Okay, let's look at the first quote, verses 10 through 12. Paul's quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, and I'll read these again for you. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. And we might interject, Paul, is there even one? And he says, no, not even one. No one righteous, not even one. That's kind of Paul's concluding argument. And and the problem is that wicked people don't seek God. Can we just all agree to that? Wicked people don't seek God. And let me just say it this way. If we think that we're somehow better apart from God's grace, apart from Him drawing us to Jesus Christ, that's where we would be. We wouldn't seek God if God didn't seek us first. If God didn't love us first, we wouldn't love Him. That's where we stand as humans. We are in desperate need of God's grace in our lives. So the sin in these verses is the sin of rejecting God, rejecting that grace that He has for us. God doesn't want us to go that way. Many times in the Bible, God has invited us to him. Let me just read three real quick ones from the Old Testament. Amos 5.4, the Lord says, Seek me and live. Deuteronomy 30.19, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. And Isaiah 55.1, Come, all you who are thirsty. See, God wants us to live with him. Unfortunately, the path that so many of us choose, and and really the path that we all started off our life choosing, was the path of the sinful nature. We choose that path because it looks good to us. But God has a different path, a path where we recognize that we are unrighteous and that he is righteous, and he invites us to himself. But like it says in verse 12, all have turned away. And what are the implications of turning away from God? Well, if we're in that trial setting, the verdict is going to come in unrighteous. And secondly, this is one of the bummers of going on that path, we tend to assume on that path that we're the judge. And that if if somehow we came to a judgment day, we could just say, oh, come on, it's not that bad. But we must know that God is the judge. He has a standard. We are not the judge. We fall short. Okay, then moving on to verses 13 through 18, um, one helpful way to understand these verses is that they describe the sins of our mouth, our feet, and our eyes. Okay, so let's look at verses 13 through 14 first. In those verses, Paul says, 
Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Throats, tongues, lips, and mouths. And in this part, Paul, uh, the first part of this, Paul's quoting from Psalm 5. Now, one of the things that I love about Psalm 5, and you'll see this if you take me up on my homework assignment today, you'll see David talking about the ways of the wicked, and then he, he, he starts to think about himself, and he says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. So if the idea is here, I know where I would go if left to myself, I know that I would choose a wicked path, what I need is for God to lead me in his righteousness. Now, I'm kind of giving away the end of my sermon here, um, but what that means is that if we are to have any hope of righteousness, it has to come from outside of us. It has to come from God. But then back to Romans 3, Paul quotes from two other psalms, Psalm 140 and Psalm 10. And in the context of Psalm 10, there's a, this kind of chilling verse. Psalm 10:4 says, In his pride the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. That's a scary one to me. I, I hope it kind of... It, there, there's some verses in the Bible that I think are meant to just kind of take, get us to step back and say, whoa, I don't want that in my life. And here's one of them. The wicked, in all his thoughts, there's no room for God. He's so busy going about his own life, living his life the way that he wants to, that he doesn't even give a moment's thought to God. And I was thinking about that one, and, and even just how often I do that. There was a, an instance this week I, I don't need to get into the de- details of it here, but just this week, I did something, and at the end of it, I looked back and I said, I didn't even talk to God about that. How, how scary it is to think that, that we humans assume that we can make it through this life on our own. And, and if you look around you, we see all sorts of people doing that. And if you look within you, I bet we all see this too often, that we trust in our own power to get us through. Again, in all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Wicked people don't feel the need to seek God. So, if that's what wicked people do, let's move to a time of application here. Let's remind ourselves to seek God. The Bible gives us all sorts of clues of how we can do this. The Bible tells us to pray continually. That whatever it is we're going through, we can talk to God about it. The Bible tells us that we are not to give up meeting together with other believers. So one of the things that we can do to remind ourselves to keep seeking God is to do what we're doing here today, to gather together and to worship our God and collectively set our eyes on Him. The Bible also tells us to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. So opening up your Bible and meeting with God there is a great way to seek God. And the Bible also tells us, tells us to be thankful in all circumstances. Something good happens, talk to God. Tell Him thanks. If something bad happens, look to God and be thankful that He's still with you in the midst of it. But let's make sure that we keep seeking God. Okay, this is a really important one. Wicked people don't seek God. They don't feel a need for Him. We need to be people who remind ourselves that God loves us and He wants us to follow Him. And then a second application. When we stop seeking God, like Paul says here, one of the places that we will surely notice it is in our mouths. Okay? If we walk away from God, you'll start to hear things coming out of your mouth that shouldn't be coming out of your mouth. 
Now, I want to tell you a, a personal story about me on this one. When I was a, a, a younger kid, like, I'm thinking like junior high and high school, I really had a problem with sarcasm. I, I really did. I just, uh, and I look back and I almost, I'm, I'm horrified sometimes at some of the things that I said to other people. And, and usually the way that it happened for me was this. I'd look at some other person and I'd, I'd come up with a nasty joke about them in order to make them look worse, thinking that it would make me look better. And I think back to some of the things that I said and like, how could I say it? It was so mean to that person, so such a terrible thing for me to say. And I remember in that stage of my life, I went to a youth conference in high school and the, the speaker had a piece of paper up there and he said, every time we say something mean to somebody, it's like we're tearing their paper. He said, we're, we're, we're ripping into them. But what we really should be doing is using our words to build others up. And remember the verse, Ephesians 4.29, um, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So if you want a little test for yourself to see how you're doing in this area of your mouth, ask yourself the question, does it build them up? Does it benefit them? So I, I just challenge you this week even to, to listen to what comes out of your mouth and, and to think about what's going on inside of your heart in regard to what comes out of your mouth. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, a man speaks. Okay, let's move on to verses 15 through 17 then. And these would be sins of the feet or, t- or taking a path of wickedness. Paul quotes saying, Their feet are swift to shed blood, Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. And here Paul is quoting from Isaiah 59, but like I said, if you want the whole context, 57, 14 through 61. Four and a half chapters. Let me just walk through a few verses from those. Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Do you know that about our sin? It separates us from God. And that is such a huge problem that left to ourselves there would be no solution for it. And the only response from God would be for him to separate us from him for all of eternity. That's what happens if we try to face our sin by ourselves. We could never repay, we could never make it up to God. And when we, when we sin now, we feel that distance. I'm sure we've all experienced that. If we get caught in a pattern of sin, we feel distant from God because that's what sin does. It separates us from God. And then back to the courtroom setting, Isaiah 59, 12 says, says, our sins testify against us. Isn't that a great thought? We're on this trial and our sins are testifying against us. God has seen all that we do. And then at the end of Isaiah 59, we get this glimpse of God's thought process as he views our wickedness. It's like God is, God is telling us what he is going to do in response to our sin. And in verse 16, it says, He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him. God saw our problem. He knew we couldn't fix it. So he stepped in. And it tells us in, the, in Isaiah 59 at the end of the chapter that he was going to come. Now it's kind of scary because it, it says, first of all, when he comes in verses 18 through 19, that he's coming in wrath to repay his enemies 
for their sin. And again, just shudder the thought to think about God coming in wrath against us. And if that's all that the story was, that would be horrible news. But there's more. The very next verse, verse 20 in Isaiah 59, says that God is also coming in redemption for his people who repent of their sins. Our sin is a huge deal. We need to repent of it. And then, finally, at the end of Isaiah 61, we see God clothing his people with salvation and righteousness. It's, it's this wonderful picture that we don't deserve, but that God gives to us as a gift of love. So the problem is that we choose our own path, a path that leads us away from God, when all the while God wants us to take the path that he has laid out for us, a path of faith, a path of following him. So if verses 15 through 17 tell us about our, our feet choosing the wrong path, what should we do then? Well, one application would be that we should choose the right path, that we should choose to go where God leads us to go. Now, obviously I'm speaking spiritually when I say that, that, that we should put ourselves in the right environment for growth, but also I mean it physically. And, and let me say it this way. Sometimes our feet just need to choose to put our body in the right place so that we can grow in our faith. And one great example for that would be getting yourself out of bed and going to church. Sometimes, you know, it's a spiritual thing, but sometimes, you know, your feet actually have to get you there. Or another example would be um, in, in about a month, we're going to open up, uh, we're going to start up our small group Bible studies here at church. And maybe some of you need to say this year, you know what, this is the year that I'm going to get involved in one of those. Even though it might mean getting up part of one of my evenings, I want to be part of one of those small group Bible studies because I know I'm going to grow in my faith if I go there. Or it might just be the simple act of you saying, I'm going to carve out some time in my day to to sit down and read my Bible. But the idea is that sometimes physically we need to put ourselves in an environment where we're going to grow spiritually. So use your feet the right way to put yourself on the right path. And then let's move on to verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul's quoting there from Psalm 36, and in that psalm, King David makes a contrast between the sinfulness of the wicked and the righteousness of God. So the, the sinfulness of the wicked here is in terms of our eyes, setting our eyes on the wrong goal. And listen to Psalm 36, verse 2. In his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. And then verse 4, it says that he commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. The picture there is of a wicked person who has set his eyes on the wrong goal. A person who has chosen the wrong path to live again. So what should we do if we don't want that to be us? Well, there's something, or rather someone better for us to set our eyes on. Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we continue to look to Jesus, we see the life that God wants us to live. I think it's first yeah, well first John two six. Anyone who claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. So if we're supposed to walk as Jesus did, what do we do? We keep our eyes on him. We don't allow our eyes to go that other direction. And the problem is is that we are tempted to go that other direction. 
Even as we're trying to keep our eyes on Jesus, we hear these temptations about going our own way. Let's remind ourselves to keep our eyes on Jesus. He is righteous, and on our own, we are not righteous. So getting back to our courtroom setting, it's not looking good for us. We're on trial. The lives that we have lived are evidence testifying against us. I want to give you an illustration. You've maybe all heard stories about dumb criminals who do things that that implicate themselves. Well, I tried to find one on the internet. I couldn't find one, so I made up my own. So I want you to picture this story. There's a guy on trial, and uh, here's how the the prosecuting attorney is just leveling all this evidence against him. He says, you entered a restaurant one day, and the first thing you did is you saw the surveillance camera, and you waved to it. So we have facial recognition of you that that was you at that restaurant. And then the next thing that you did on that surveillance camera is you saw somebody with the keys dangling out of their pocket and you took their keys and put them in your pocket. And then the next thing that you did is you went to the counter and you ordered food and you used your own credit card. So we have a timestamp right there from your credit card. You were the one who ordered that food. And then you hurry up, took your food out, you went and found that car, and the surveillance camera was pointing at that car. We saw you get in it and drive it away. And not only that, but later on that day, you posted a picture of yourself on Facebook with a caption that says, look at my sweet ride, and I got it for free. (laughs) That would not be a difficult case. It it has all been seen, what he has done. And, And the verdict would be that he is guilty. Paul, similarly here, concludes his description of the bad news with a conclusion for all of us in verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. So where this is all heading is that every mouth would be silenced before God. There's this mountain of evidence against us, and if we were asked to give a response, our jaws would just drop and we'd have nothing to say because we would all know what we are. And like I said, that's for everyone. Whether they've heard God's word and then fallen short of that standard, and think of it this way. Maybe somebody might try to say, hey, wait a second, God, I received your word and I tried to live according to it. What would the response be? Well, think about it. For us, if we picked out every single one of God's commands in the Bible and tried to live our lives according to it, what would we find out? We'd know which ones we miss. If we were to follow, if we were to try to follow God's ways and our own effort, we would see that every one of us falls short of God's standard. And that's a problem because it means that we're not righteous on our own. Again, that's what we're getting at here again today. We're not yet talking about whether God can make us righteous. We're talking about whether before God we can come to him in our own righteousness and say, God, look what I've done. I'm pure. And the, the verdict would come in that we are guilty, that every one of us has sinned. Like I tried to hammer home last Sunday, works cannot save us. That's what it's talking about here when it talks about the law and observing the law. God has told us what he wants us to do and we should try to do those things that God has told us to do. 
But even if we tried as hard as we could for the rest of our lives, we would fall short. We are under sin. That's the bad news. We've been walking through it probably for a little over a month now. The bad news is that we are not righteous on our own. But thanks be to God, there is another way. The very next verse explains it. And I I couldn't just leave you hanging here with the bad news. I had to just describe a little bit of the good news. So I want to, in the next few minutes here, I want to explain a little bit of the good news. And I want to read for you the next two verses in Romans. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. But now, and isn't that good? Dan kind of emphasized the but God in Ephesians 2. I want to emphasize the but now here. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So there's a difference in this kind of righteousness. It comes from God. It doesn't come from what we do. It has been revealed from God because he wants us to know it, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to get into that next week, the difference between trying to earn God's favor and by faith receiving God's favor. And it's only that second one that works. By faith we come to Christ. That's the good news. So, so to give you a word picture of it, I want you to think about that courtroom setting again. We have all sinned. The lives that we have lived are evidence against us, but then something amazing happens for those of us who have received Jesus Christ as our Savior. Jesus Christ shows up as our defense attorney. In 1 John 2, he is called our advocate, meaning he comes alongside of us. And Jesus comes and says, I paid for that one. I died for his sin." And as we're standing there with our jaw dropped open, amazed at the gift of grace that was just shown to us by God the Son, the Holy Spirit prompts within us to say somehow, I am God's child. That's what Romans 8.16 says. The Holy Spirit testifies with us that we are God's children. So all the evidence has been stacked up against us, but Jesus says, I paid for it. The Holy Spirit prompts us to say, I'm God's child. And as we're saying it, the Holy Spirit says it with us to the Father. And the Father himself reminds us that it was his plan from before creation to adopt us as children whom he loves. It's pretty amazing when you think of it. My life nothing but filthy rags of unrighteousness. Yet God, in his love, sent his Son so that I could be made righteous. It is the gift of God and it is most certainly good news. Now over the next couple months here at Cornerstone, we're going to dive into that good news. There's lots to learn about it. And I hope what happens for us is that everything we learn about it will turn around and praise to God. And we will rejoice in what he has done for us. I hope it's also been helpful for you to understand the bad news. Because I think that understanding the depths of human sin will help us understand the majesty of God's love for us as we contemplate what he has done for us. So let's respond with faith. Knowing that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord. And with that as the starting point, not with our own works, not with our own effort trying to 
please him, but with the starting point of faith in Jesus Christ. Let's use our mouths then to praise God. Let's use our feet to put ourselves in the right position to worship God and let's set our eyes on Jesus Christ and let's live for him. Let's do it all in the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your great love for us and it it is amazing to think that you have love for sinners like us. But we know from your word that that's exactly what what you have for us is love. We know it also because you sent Jesus for us to take our sins upon himself and to die for us. And we praise you, Jesus, for what you did. And if anyone in here doesn't yet know Jesus, we just come before you right now and say, Jesus, thank you. Please forgive me. And God, we all want to walk by faith with Jesus Christ. Would you please strengthen us to walk with you? Fill us with the Holy Spirit that we can honor you with the lives that we live by faith. And thank you again, God, for making us righteous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close now by singing to the one who grants righteousness to us. And um, This song fits so well here. It's called, Lord, I Need You. I want you to think again about your need to come before God with righteousness. Yet, our inability to have any righteousness of our own. So there's a line in this song that says, my one defense, my righteousness. It's like saying, God, if I could say one thing in my own defense to tell you that I am righteous, Lord, I need you. That's what this song says. My one defense, my righteousness. Lord, I need you. I am not righteous on my own. I need you. So I want you all to to stand and to sing with us these, these words of praise to our Father who makes us righteous.